introduce uh, our two speakers for this morning. And before they actually get to speak, I'm going to have Don Dunscombe uh, come up and read a passage from Isaiah 58 uh, that the speakers asked us to read. And I'm going to um, read this introduction of the two speakers. So they're going to be uh, teaming up together in what we used to call when we first started Antioch a, a numchuck sermon. Um, so Keith Wright is one of us. Uh, Keith is the international president of Food for the Hungry, a Christian relief and development organization serving the most vulnerable in 26 countries. Keith has more than 20 years of innovative relief and development leadership and implementation experience in Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the U.S. For 11 of those years, he lived in Africa. Keith is passionate about finding solutions to the world's most serious problems by pursuing not-for-profit and for-profit innovations that tap the emerging strengths of the global south. Keith and his wife Heidi and their four children uh, moved here to Central Oregon and to Antioch about a year ago. And uh, I hope many of you have, have come to, to know these very interesting folks. Teaming with Keith in this Numchuck sermon is uh, Nathan George. And Nathan is the founder and CEO of Trade as One, a fair trade organization based in California that is focused on uh, partnering with churches around the country, bringing them to get their people to connect their faith with how they spend their money. Nathan is a businessman who has spent the last 18 years in the software industry. He lives with his wife and three boys who six years ago moved from the UK to the States to set up Trade as One. Nathan regularly teaches at churches and speaks at conferences on the subject of what the gospel has to say to our consumer culture. Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why, have we fasted and you see it not? Have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked and cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday sun. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You might be asking yourself at this point, uh, where's Ken Whitesmite? Could be floating the river right now. <laughs> but, uh, we're happy to be with you today. And you know, listening to uh, Mike and Ann uh, this morning and sending them out, uh, as Rick pointed out, my family and I moved from Kenya almost a year ago to the day and joined this community. And I can tell you, Kenya's getting a good deal out of the transaction. Um, <laughs> but it's really a blessing uh, that this community here in Bend, Oregon, is, is just so connected and uh, so committed to uh, giving our lives away and serving the world. So I'm Keith, the guy with the cool British accent is Nathan. And uh, we are going to do a nunchuck sermon and hopefully not knock ourselves out on the uh, backswing. There we go. Okay, so you might be wondering, why is a business guy and an NGO guy and relief and development up here today? Partnerships are sadly unusual in the church and not as common as they should be uh, among social justice organizations. And while God does call specific organizations, churches, and businesses into existence, I have to think he gets a little bit frustrated by the lack of cooperation and, and coordination and sharing uh, that we don't do quite as we should, that we act as if we can achieve the big missions God's given us alone and without each other. The fact is that to move the needle on transforming the world requires active healthy and creative partnerships to bring together our talents and resources. We, the church, must develop the ability to think beyond our individual identity, self-interest, and pride to develop the ability to collaborate, to bring the distinctives, resources, and positioning of, uh, of these different bodies together to accomplish much more than we could alone. So the, the FH and Trade is One partnership uh, is one example of coming together uh, as a three-legged stool of NGO, business, and church uh, to respond to poverty. And while our message today is not really about partnership per se, um, Nathan and I share a commitment to that and uh, believe in creative collaboration. And uh, we just wanted to kind of make that point up front because we think it's so fundamental um, to our collective response to God's call. 
And incidentally, I should mention that Nathan and I first met face-to-face -face at the Justice Conference uh, this past February in Portland. So another good thing that came out of, uh, out of that event. So let's get into it, and I'll just uh, have Nathan and I will introduce who we are and organizations a bit. Uh, Nathan, could you share a bit uh, about your personal journey and uh, the work and mission of Trade as One? Yeah, great. Well, it's great to be with you. I'm sorry about the accent. I can't do anything about it. Sorry. Um, I actually grew up with an accent like you guys. Uh, my mother's from Denver, my father's from London, and I grew up a missionary kid. Um, I resonate very strongly with the two kids up here. Um, in fact, my brother and I were born on the mission field, and I remember the age of 10 running down the road in Iran, being chased by angry mullahs. Um, if they had caught us, I'm pretty sure we would have been stoned. We would have been killed. So I've had a pretty radical upbringing. Um, getting stoned now where I live in Santa Cruz means something completely different. <laughs> um, so I grew up with this really radical example of what giving your life away means by, from my parents. And I've got any number of stories about how, uh, what, that actually, uh, what that actually means. But when it came to me taking responsibility for the direction of my own life, I chose business. And so I've been in the software industry for about um, 18 years. Um, and about eight years ago, God really put what, what I now recognize to be a, a holy discontent in my heart at um, climbing the greasy pole of a career, um, at how I was as a father, as a husband, and particularly how I was as a follower of this radical person, Jesus. And so I went back to First Principles, read the Gospels again, realized that um, I had missed good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, I don't know how you get to the age that I got to, having heard more sermons than I've had hot dinners, and missed that, but I did. And so, as a business guy, I became fascinated about this intersection between business and job creation, and good news to the poor, and the church, the kingdom. And so, deliberately spent time in that, um, took some time off of work. My wife and I visited about 25 businesses on the front line of HIV AIDS, um, human trafficking, women rescued from commercial sexual exploitation, rural poverty, urban poverty, just looking at what job creation did for them and were totally blown away by what we saw as transformation in whole communities um, that occurred just through the provision of, of dignified jobs. And, and um, so we got really excited about this model of, in, of the church engaging, not its giving, we need to do more giving, but in its spending, how we could have a massively transformational impact across the world if we engage. So it's a long story. My wife and I decided to move from the UK. We thought we were going to be ending up in India, ended up in California, um, I don't know, uh, and uh, started Traders One um, in order to partner with the church to get them to think about uh, spending differently. And this is the video which um, compresses uh, what Traders One is all about into a couple of minutes. You know, it's strange, but the more stuff we get, the more entitled we feel. We become preoccupied, busy, driven people. We lose all sense of gratitude, and our generosity disappears. And we're reduced to being just consumers. We live in this system that ruthlessly targets us, that manipulates us, and before we know it, enslaves us. And meanwhile, half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. And no matter how gifted, intelligent, or hardworking they are, there's no escape. They don't have access to jobs, to resources, to justice, or even to clean water. 
They have little education and nobody they know can help. Now, what if an answer to our problem could also be an answer to theirs? What if our spending could actually be used to fix problems instead of creating them? What if the money we spent could save a life? With fair trade, small changes to our spending habits here can transform whole communities there. We get things we need like coffee, olive oil, chocolate, soap, bags, t-shirts, gifts, all made by the poor who now earn a living wage. Made sustainably and made without slavery or child labor. What they get are jobs that bring them dignified work, that break cycles of dependency and that free them from abuse. Churches all over America are partnering with Traders One to mobilize their people to buy fair trade and be good news to the poor. Their purchases have brought dignity, stability and hope to some of the darkest places in the world. And think about this, if every person who attended church in this country made just one fair trade purchase, one million families would be lifted out of poverty for one whole year. So join us. Your spending can change lives. So Keith, that's Traders One. Tell us a bit about your background, your, your story, and, and the work of Food for the Hungry. Yeah, sure. Great video, actually. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, I went to Africa, in all honesty, with the sense that I could uh, contribute or help fix uh, a troubled continent. Uh, so 21 years old, that's, that was kind of my, my viewpoint. Um, and what began as well-intentioned but paternalistic uh, instinct um, has become a deep love and respect for that continent, and now Asia and Latin America as well. And uh, you know, over these past decades, I've learned a lot about what makes real, measurable, transformative differences in these places. And there are three key, key re realizations have been, one, that I have been personally blessed and transformed by the very places that I went to help. And I honestly do believe that God's primary purpose in taking me to Africa 20 years ago was more about what he needed to do in my life. Um, and I would say it's been a bonus that I've been able to make a contribution in some different ways back. Um, but, so that was a, a shocker. <laughs> you go to, go to really change something and you realize that you're the one who has changed. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, that these countries have enormous talent, resources, and vision uh, that must be a part of solving their own problems. And that might sound simplistic, but respecting that in practice is not always easy. And third, that partnership and collaboration is the only way uh, that we can make a sizable impact together with these mm -hmm. countries and communities, to harnessing the, the energies and, and focus of so many good organizations and governments and efforts and communities. Uh, a case in point I'd want to share with you briefly is that a guy who was eight years old uh, when I first met him, when I first moved to Africa, Chinunu William, uh, if you've been to Africa, is one of the typical kind of barefoot kids following you around, peeking in your windows in the evenings, just kind of hanging around uh, all the time. Uh, went to school under a tree, only had one parent, um, is now uh, we're a good friend. We've been friends now for almost 21 years. From that point, forward, and now he's more of a peer. Uh, he's finishing his MBA this year and uh, planning to run for parliament, and he's someone that I really respect his views on where Africa's going in the future of that. And again, just a, 
a synopsis of uh, a relationship that reflects my kind of maturing understanding of, of Africa and its potential, where they are. So today, uh, I'm honored to lead the work of FH uh, globally as international president. And we serve in uh, 26 countries with over 2,500 staff, most of whom are nationals from the countries we serve. So I am a minority in my organization, and I love it. <laughs> um, and I also coordinate our Global North uh, office partnerships uh, in, in several countries in Europe, as well as Canada and the US. Um, FH targets both physical and spiritual poverty uh, in the most vulnerable communities uh, in countries around the world. And we walk with churches, leaders, and families to help the, to empower them to unlock their God-given potential, to take up their roles uh, in the development of their communities and countries. Um, this video is not quite as cool as Nathan's. There's only two-minute one I could find, but you'll get the idea, so we can, we can share that. What moment in your life changed you forever? Was it a first kiss? A touchdown? Maybe it was the day you got married? Or a simple act of kindness? History has been defined by many moments. Some were filled with devastation, some with regret, and others with courage and love and compassion. One by one, they have brought us to this time, this moment. Food for the Hungry has been serving the hopeless by meeting physical and spiritual needs for over 40 years. We are committed to working in the hardest places of the world. Today, we work in nearly 30 countries throughout Asia, Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean to help communities become self-sustainable and self-sufficient. In 2011, with the help of people like you, over 900,000 people received access to clean water and over 700,000 people received better access to the basic necessity of food. And now, 2012 is your time, your moment, to be a part of a movement. Come and help us feed the hungry, drill a well, build a school, by sponsoring a child or running a race. Together, we can end extreme poverty. Here at FH, we have many moments to look back on. Let's create one now, together. So, I don't know what it is with the British accent. You're getting a double dose today. Um, so Keith, I mean, a lot of things are changing in the world. I mean, there's been some pretty fundamental shifts we know in global finance. Everyone's expecting it to get back to normal. I don't think it ever will, but um, there's a lot of things. Big, big kind of seismic shifts going on. Um, how do these changes inform uh, what, what should be our response uh, to, to global needs? Yeah, I mean, the world is changing and changing quickly, and I don't think that's a surprise to anyone here. Uh, but there's significant changes both here in the global north as well as in the global south that we really need to understand uh, to inform how we partner and work uh, so we can do that effectively. And just as importantly, we need to allow our assumptions uh, about the global south to be challenged by a changing reality. And really, are we willing to let our assumptions be challenged? Um, the, uh, the assumptions we make about what Africa's really like, what Asia's like, what, what Latin America's like. And, and the reality is that facts that don't fit our worldview are hard to take in. You know, if it doesn't fit, it kind of bounces off. Yet, as believers committed to truth and committed to the world, uh, we need to be open to constantly 
studying, learning, being exposed uh, to how the world is changing. It's not slowing down, it's accelerating. And I think part of that's the interconnectedness and how that's picking up. But really, ultimately, to be aware of how God is moving in the world. So I'd like to frame a few of these changing realities for you around kind of two concepts, physical poverty and spiritual poverty. And that's, one of, that's kind of how we think about how we, uh, how we respond. So some of these facts will be familiar to you, kind of the same old story, but uh, some I suspect might not be. And I'll ask your forgiveness in advance. I'm going to throw a few statistics at you, but just to frame a, a bigger picture. So as a baseline, there are now about 6.8 billion people in our world today. And of this, um, let me start with physical poverty. Um, of this, almost half the world, or more than 3 billion people, uh, live on less than $2 a day. 1 billion people worldwide suffer from chronic hunger. One out of two children lives in poverty. 20,000, 22,000 children die every day due to poverty. And to visualize that, uh, you know, imagine a, an average baseball stadium half full. And that's how many children are dying every day uh, due to poverty. And most of these numbers, of course, uh, of the physically poor live in the global south. And while these are bleak statistics, they represent significant improvement from even 10 years ago. Even five years ago, the number is 25,000 children dying every day. Progress is being made. Um, but more than that, poverty is not the entire reality in the global south. For the first time ever, the proportion of people living in extreme poverty dropped in every single global south region. That's never happened before, and it's happened for the first time. Another equally real dynamic in the global south is that of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world, over the coming five years, seven are in Africa. Um, sorry, eight are in global south nations, seven of those are in Africa. So that's the kind of information you pull out of The Economist, not, not out of a mission report. These are the fastest growing econ economies on the planet. And if you fly between Africa capitals these days, um, you'll find plane loads full, not just of tourist missionaries and aid workers, but also business guys. And it's kind of funny watching it, you know, pinstripe, pinstripe suit, matching t-shirts, you know, kind of all mixed together. And it's fantastic because all of these things are necessary given the realities of a changing global south. So those are just some snapshots on physical poverty, on spiritual poverty, whereas the global south does continue to face extreme poverty. That is part of their reality. Um, here in the global north, we have a growing spiritual poverty, a crisis of identity and meaning. The more we possess, the more we seem to struggle as a society. And it is kind of mind-boggling. It doesn't make sense. We heard from Ken Weissman just a few weeks ago that Oregon uh, is the most or one of the most unchurched states um, in the U.S. Of, in the 1990s, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the, in the U.S. declined by 10%, while the population increased by 11. And the U.S. now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. The U.S. now ranks third behind only China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. It's pretty wild. That kind of blew my mind when I read that. And I don't think it's a surprise that more missionaries are saying, we need to get to the states. We need to go make a difference there. 
Um, broken relationships, uh, as you guys probably know, about 50% of all marriages uh, in the United States end in divorce. Um, and I'd like to say it would be different in the Christian community. It's not. It's the same statistic. Depression affects more than 21 million Americans. And for the, those of us ages 15 to 44, it's the number one cause of disability is depression in our country. And the tragic shooting in Colorado this week raises the question, you know, why would a guy raised in a solidly middle-class neighborhood, a preeminent scholar and academic, why would he do something like this? You know, it just, it raises questions about what's wrong here. You know, we, could, we have more or less everything we could ever ask for, but something doesn't feel right in our society. Now, we see some different spiritual poverty trends in the global south. More missionaries are going out from global south countries than global north countries, which is pretty amazing. Um, the global north, and when I say global north, Europe, U.S., etc., has played a huge role in the growth of the faith around the world, but that's changing. And now countries like Nigeria has more Anglicans than the U.S. and Europe combined in Nigeria alone. Things are changing. And those countries are now maturing and sending missionaries to where they think it's needed. And they're coming here. God bless them. We need to hear from them. The center of definition or how we define the Christian faith is shifting to the global south, which, in other words, the majority church. 60% of the estimated 2 billion Christians in the world today live in Africa, Asia, or Latin America. 60%. By 20 million, there will be an estimated 3 billion Christians, 75% of whom will live in the global south. There's something happening here. It's very exciting, but it's different. And we need to recognize what, what's happening. So this means that in many cases, when we talk about serving the poor uh, in these parts of the world, we're talking about serving and walking with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that even as we walk with them, they have an increased opportunity to serve and bless us in ways that we need even as we walk together with them. And I've been kind of living, uh, as I explained earlier, kind of experienced some of this uh, bias I had to get over with in my own experience, but I've been thinking about why this is, and I believe that many of us in the U.S., it's easy for us to see why other nations need us, right? They have things, we have things, they need us. It's a lot harder for us to see why we need them right? And I've been thinking about why is that? And I really believe that our paradigm of materialism, what wraps us up in our identity, makes it hard for us to imagine that someone without all these things has anything to offer us. You know, when you go to someone who lives in the back of their car or in a hut, I mean, be honest, would you actually accept advice from them about faith, about contentment? Um, and I think that it's that, that paradigm that we get so caught up with in that, that prevents us from understanding what we need from the world. Yet in a spiritual sense, I think we have a lot to, to gain. And I was thinking about this and trying to kind of drill it down a little bit, but you know, let's say you go home this afternoon and an African couple shows up at your doorstep and says, hey, we'd like to spend some time helping you with your marriage or with the concept of contentment. Would we be as accepting to them as we expect them to be when we walk into a village in Africa? I don't think so. In uh, 1 Corinthians, 
Paul gives us the image of the body of Christ as a paradigm for community and for partnership. And that's the passage where he talks about the parts of the body working together. And we are still called to engage. This isn't a cease and desist message about, you know, they've got it sorted out, you know. And it's not about really that we don't need each other. The point is we really need each other. But in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that as part of a global body, that's how we're called to respond. That it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship where both sides really are blessed. We need each other, our friends in the global south, other churches and organizations, to fulfill, call, to fulfill God's call. And in 1 Corinthians, we, we read that every part of the body gives to the other part of the body and receives from every other part of the body, right? You stub your toe, you're going to feel it all over, right? I mean, it's, you're, we're, we're called to be connected. It's a giving and receiving is, is the implication there. Are we ready for that? Do we do that? Again, concepts, com, concepts are easy, <clears throat> not always easy to apply. The point of these references is just to highlight that economic growth and spiritual growth are happening in the global south that economic power does not necessarily equal spiritual health. And that while we are in a position to share our wealth to partner for poverty solutions, we have great poverty ourselves. One of the, kind, one of the core things I've been learning uh, slowly, I'm not particularly smart, but over a couple decades, is that our response to poverty is out of our own brokenness. That we enter as healers being ourselves wounded and broken in that we have a lot of wealth to give, and we have a lot of great ideas to give. Um, and there are huge critical needs in the world. But again, we need to recognize that we respond out of our own brokenness and poverty. We're wealthy with resources, but needy spiritually for the large part. And God calls us to respond to the poor, but I believe not just for the benefit of the poor, but so that we can be transformed as well. I don't think he's saying, hey, this is just a transaction where you can write a check, great, you've done your bit. He's saying, you need healing. You need this connection with the poor. The poor have something to say to you. So in the, re uh, in the reading of Isaiah 58 that we heard from Don, just read two verses from that. And it's kind of the answer to what true fasting is. What is the true practice of religion? Is, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And here's the kicker. It says, then, it's a conditional statement, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. I sure want that. But it's that statement, do this, and I've got your back. You have, you're broken, respond, and I will be with you. So we do tend to write a check to move on with our lives, and checks are good things. Ken, you heard me on that when you watched this. Checks are great. We have resources to give. But beyond sharing our resources, what is required of us? Isaiah 58 is a powerful passage, not just of the call to respond, but God's promise of meeting our needs as, our do, as, as we do so. So I'm going to hand back over so we can change accents here. Uh, Nathan, could you share some thoughts uh, with us about how we can and should respond as a community uh, to better reflect the true fasting? Yeah, thanks, Keith.
really great stuff. Um, so the failure of Israel's worship in Isaiah 58 was just simply the failure to reflect God's character. Um, he says, you are just as self-interested as your neighbors. You do worship as if it matters to you, but you don't reflect my character. I want a community, God says, that looks like me. This is the whole point of why I chose you. I didn't, I didn't choose you because you were a great nation or that you were beautiful. He says, I want a community that reflects me. And God says to his people, stop doing as if religion because it makes me sick. You sing and you worship me as if you love me, and yet you look no different to your pagan neighbors. That's the message of Isaiah 58. You see, worship conforms us to the image of that which we adore. We become what we look like. And the trouble is that in the Western world, the church, for the most part, looks at its own culture, okay, through spending so much of our own personal time being entertained by music and by films and by media and by sports and by going through therapeutic things like shopping. And God is calling His people to live peculiarly different lives with alternative practices that reflect Him, His character, His justice, His righteousness, His faithfulness, forgiveness, His humility. Because God hears the cries of the oppressed. And behind the statistics that Keith gave us, there are untold broken lives and hearts. And God sits with them in the ashes. That's where you'll find Him. In Matthew 25, the principle is God is sacramentally present in the poor and the neglected. I believe he's sacramentally present in the 14-year-old girl being raped in a brothel because she has been purchased by $300. God hears her cry. And this is the point that Isaiah is making. He says to Israel, this is your very story, right? God heard your cries, and I brought you out of Egypt. Don't you get it? God is a keenly attentive to issues of justice. And the question that Isaiah poses is, now, is my people, are my people going to reflect this too? And here's the thing for us, two and a half thousand years after the words of Isaiah. You see, mankind has been extraordinarily successful at mastering his uh, surroundings. You look at this graph. Um, we've improved our lives immeasurably. For most of history, uh, mankind has lived in poverty, with a few tiny exceptions, um, kings and pharaohs and whatever. But around about 1918, 19 somewhere, we did something amazing. We discovered coal, right? So up until that point, all work had to be done by our own muscles or the muscles of animals. When we discover coal, we discover this enormous potential stored energy in the ground created over uh, a long uh, period of time, and then mankind is extremely good at harnessing that energy and turning it into incredibly um, uh, revolutionary improvements in our standard um, of living. And, and so the, once we discover coal, put that together with our intelligence, and the rest is modern history. Um, now, it doesn't take the brains of an archbishop to work out that 
you can't carry on up that graph indefinitely in a planet of finite resources, okay? And I think what we are beginning to witness now is the uh, slowing down and maybe even the reversal of that graph. Um, let me read from a book entitled The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding. Uh, we, the lucky billion, now spend most of our lives seeking ever greater and subtler refinements in what we perceive to be our quality of life. Nicer clothes, better music, more comfortable furniture, more interesting holidays, more convenient technology, more unusual variation of food, a more secure retirement. It doesn't get much better than this. Our grandparents, let alone the generations prior to them, would look at us in amazement. They would see us living like kings and pharaohs, with every convenience dealt with, every basic human need met, and our arguments on what needs to improve going to ever greater refinements of all this. They would hear us complain about interest rates, not being able to afford a larger house or a renovation, and having a degree of uncertainty that we will be able to live this lifestyle when we stop working. A few generations ago, no one stopped working unless they were dead, let alone spent their latter years in physical comfort with decent health care. Humanity has, on balance, performed extraordinarily well. As we've swept across the world in just 10,000 years, we've established a quality of life for billions of people that was unimaginable at this scale even just a few hundred years ago. Of course, still left behind are many more billions, many of whom live in grinding, soul-destroying poverty. And while we strive for larger televisions, DVDs in our cars, and the perfectly grilled tender steak, they die for a glass of clean water and a bowl of rice. My friends, in the light of the truth in this, I think God is calling his church today to decide if we're going to carry on just doing as if religion, singing songs to each other, giving money on the margins of our finances, and looking for all intents and purposes like the rest of culture around us, or whether we are going to be people marked by strange alternative practices that once again reflect the self-giving character of a God who sits in ashes with the poor. We are to look, we are to act, we are to be different. What would this difference look like if it is to be authentically biblical? Well, there's a whole sermon series, we could, we could probably spend a whole year unpacking this, but I think if I was going to summarize the themes of how God talks about how we are to see the wealth that He's entrusted us with, it would be to live simply, to give generously, and to buy ethically. It would not simply be about writing a check to fix the problem. That's the way the world wants to work. God's people are called to be different. What would it look like if instead our religion causes us not to write checks from the margin of our financial resources, <clears throat> but instead it permeates every single area of our finances? What would a true fast look like? A fast in which God's character is reflected in our behavior, not our behavior just simply reflecting the culture around us. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, when we talk about money in our churches, we only ever talk about giving, right? And how it needs to be 10%. Actually, we won't go there. That's the Old Testament model. And it's not even 10% in the Old Testament, by the way. It's more than 10% if you add up all the tithes. But research shows us that on average, only 3% of uh, people's income is given to the church. It's about 2.8%. So we give sermons on how we need to do more giving, trying to get people to go from 3% to 10%. But wait, what about the other 
Right? What has the kingdom of God got to say about all of that? I've only ever heard, I've heard more sermons than I've had hot dinners, and I've only ever heard one or two sermons about the other 97%. How is God's character to be reflected in how we spend our money? Well, I think we would spend less, for a start, on ourselves. We would live more simply. That would free us up to be more self-giving, to give more generously. And then it would allow us to be freed up to engage in um, sourcing the goods that we need and doing it intentionally so that the production of those goods and those services honor the character of God. In other words, they haven't damaged the earth um, from which they come, and they have not willfully taken advantage of the poor, haven't been produced through slavery or coercion, that they are the result of dignified jobs. In other words, the product has been made by people being treated as we would want to be treated, which is the definition of fairness, right, the golden rule. When Jesus is asked, <clears throat> what is the most important law, he goes back to the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with all that you are. And he also says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that he is quoting from, goes on to say, now teach this to your children. Talk about it all the time. When you wake up, when you go to bed, write it on your hands, bind it to your foreheads, write it above the gates of your city. In other words, the love of God becoming that which we adore is to infiltrate our most intimate relationships in our homes, the work that we do with our hands, what we think about every day. It is to be the governing principles of how we conduct commerce underneath the gates of our cities. And just as an illustration of this, stop to think for a moment about what the church could achieve if it intentionally used its spending power in this way. Um, last year, roughly $3 trillion was spent by Christians in the United States simply buying stuff, buying things, not services, just things. If you converted just 1% of that to, in this case, fair trade products as an example, we would create collectively, just the Christians, would create <clears throat> 30 million jobs amongst the poorest of the poor people that Jesus calls the least of these. So not by giving any more money, not by being more generous, not by buying things we weren't going to buy anyway, we, by simply making a deliberate, conscious decision to change where products that we were going to be consuming were bought, we could create 30 million jobs. And with 30 million dignified jobs, you know there's, there's another 10 people for every job that you create that are positively affected by that. And I founded Traders One to be a tool for Christians to respond to this call of God to bring the kingdom um, this, into this whole area of how we spend our money, to see good news preached to the poor and freedom proclaimed to the captive um, through what we wear and what we eat, what we consume. So I'm going to explain one of the programs um, as an illustration of how um, this Shema thinking is applied to our spending. And whilst I would love uh, lots of people here to rush outside and sign up for this program, um, I want you to hear this as well. What is more important to both Keith and I is that the Spirit of God through Isaiah 58 this morning speaks to you. And think about what would the Shema mean for you, how every area of our lives, not just how we write a check and try and solve a problem and walk away and forget about it, how does all of that affect 
even the things that we consume on our tables. So Traders One, we've been uh, being asked for a long time, um, I like the vision of Traders One, but help me build ethical consumption into my everyday life, not by getting me to buy a bracelet or a wooden elephant that you know, makes me feel good or, or creates a job for someone that way, but what about every single day? So about 18 months ago, we brought out a program called um, Change for Good, um, and in this, people basically just subscribe at um, uh, the rate of a dollar a day, which you know, was basically what I was spending on lattes and buying coffee um, out of the house, um, <clears throat> so that every three months, uh, once a season, a box turns up at your doorstep of fair trade consumables uh, like olive oil and soap and tea and chocolate and honey, um, and you'll see the display outside. This is the summer box that you'll see out there. Um, that's what gets shipped to you. And importantly, in that box, then, you get to learn the stories of the people behind the products that we consume. Globalization has been incredibly productive in increasing our uh, quality of life, but what it's done is break the connection between the producer and the consumer. And it is so important for us, as Keith was saying, to learn from them. And so you get to learn the stories of the people behind uh, those products. Um, and then through our partnership with Food for the Hungry, every box that gets shipped then, um, Traders One donates through Food for the Hungry into a seed program, which is what I love so much. This is a really about empowering the poor. So, so seeds are given and training is given to a family to be able to grow their own food. So you'll see out there a, a, a whole pile of beans, and that's basically how many beans you, um, you allow to be created as a result of receiving um, each of those boxes. So I'm going to be at a table uh, briefly outside afterwards, and you just fill out these forms if you're interested in, um, in taking part, and I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that. But together in partnership, um, we, the body of Christ, through Shema-like business practices that Traders One attempts to engage in and that ventures like FH are engaged in, the body, we are to be uh, the light on the hill for a broken world, and we are only going to be that if, as in Isaiah 58, we begin in every era of our lives to just reflect this God, um, this compassionate God uh, who sits with the poor. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan. And in, in conclusion, end-to-end um, transformation is a term uh, we use in FH uh, to describe our goals and partnership So, is that okay? No? That's all right. Here you go. No. Hold on. Okay. Just got one sentence. Go for it. End-to-end -end transformation is a uh, term we use to describe our goals for partnership uh, between Global North churches and donors and Global South churches and communities as we recognize that both can be blessed and strengthened uh, can be strengthened by the other through relationship and effective partnership. So in the sense that Nathan and I and FH and Trade as One are trying to find how we can use our respective strengths and positioning um, as we engage uh, with the world, uh, be open to and ready for what God will do for you as you do for others. So thanks for listening this morning and God bless. And I think we are...